0: you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 2 and when you get there if you would stand and we will read God's word and show honor to it. beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. You know, I've been asking myself this question for a long time, and I want to ask it, to you this morning and hopefully help us to begin to look at these passages and figure out what Paul is saying to us and really calling us to think about in light of the gospel. What does the gospel do in people? And so here's the question I want to ask you. What does normal Christianity look like? What does that look like? Now, I'm asking you this question because I think it's a relevant question and it's a valuable question. Too often, we can get into a mode or a mindset which defines reality by our own experience or by our own understanding. And we are right when we question that and say, don't allow your experiences to drive you. But I also want to say this. Normal Christianity does not look like people who are been out of shape. Normal Christianity is not people who hide their sin. Normal Christianity is not people walking around saying, is there anybody that just wants to sit down and have a conversation or a meal together and allow the Lord to talk in our midst as we talk about His Word, as we see what's going on. I don't want to necessarily say this about about myself, but I will say this to you. I experienced the other day a brief taste of what normal Christianity looks like. I went over and had lunch with Fred and Vonnie Hoogworth, and what was supposed to be probably an hour and a half or two hours of, of lunch and enjoyment turned into five and a half hours of really just great conversation, laughter, opening of God's Word, talking about God's faithfulness in our lives, obviously a lot longer in their lives than in mine. they are, they're got a few years on me but there's a sense in which that's normal christianity and sometimes what we get in our heads is we think that well that's something you do, that's a goal to strive for and what i want to say is no that's a reality that should be taking place in god's people's lives it should be normative it's normal that's what christians do they care about one another and they Talk with one another. And they spend time with one another. And let me give you a few other examples of things they do. What normal Christianity looks like is people for whom sacrifice is not an extraordinary thing. It's a normal thing. You need me to help you? Oh, sure, brother. And we really mean brother. We really mean sister. When we look at the older people in our congregation and they might need our help, we think, Mother father doesn't scripture tell us younger men treat the older men in the congregation like you would a father treat the older women like you would a mother care for them and if we think about that older people don't exasperate your spiritual children you see be encouraged with them be a uplifting and building Don't make them think, oh, getting old is horrible. But give them something to look forward to and say, even when your bodies are deteriorating, God is still good. He's still faithful. He's still helping us stay on the narrow way. He's still delighting us to grow and know Him. That's normal Christianity. That's not extraordinary. Here's another example. It looks like people who are able to repent openly and freely. Husbands to their wives. Wives to their husbands. Children to their parents. And parents to their children. That's normal Christianity. That's not something amazing. It's normal. It's what Christians do. I sometimes get mad about things that really, quite frankly, didn't warrant me being mad. Maybe I'm tired. Maybe there's a thousand things that are going on. I'm sure that doesn't happen to anybody else in this congregation but me. I'm sure I'm alone in that. And sometimes I have raised my voice or said things in a way that was not helpful to my children. What should I do? Well, we've got to keep a very firm and authoritarian view towards our children. We don't want them thinking that they can just do anything they want. No. We go to our children and we say, that was wrong. And I'm deeply sorry. Children should not be afraid to repent to their parents. They should come and find that this is a place where the gospel is given, that encouragement and wisdom are found. It should not shock us when a husband comes and confesses to his wife that he's struggling in an area of sin, which is repulsive. Or a wife comes and equally confesses that she's struggling in an era of sin which is repulsive. It should not be shocking to see people in our midst confessing sin one to another, which is told for us to do by James and others. Confess your sins one to another. How do people do that? Yet somehow the Scriptures see that as normal Christianity. A place where shame over sin leads to love and freedom, not fear and guilt. See, we ought to be ashamed of our sins, but it ought not lead us to fear and guilt. It ought to lead us to love and freedom. Not freedom to do whatever we want, but rather freedom to live and love God and others. Even our enemies, even people that really scare us or really make us mad. See, depending on where you fall in the political scheme, what I'm saying to you is is that whether Jesse Jackson or Hillary Clinton or George Bush or Dick Cheney walk in this room and you have some aversion to one of those individuals or maybe you have an aversion to all of them because they're politicians or, or people in the media and the public eye, the question is normal Christianity extends themselves to those people and loves them. That's normal. That's not surprising. It's not shocking. It's normal. And see, one of the things I want to do this morning is begin to get us as a congregation to begin to get in tune with what normal Christianity looks like. Is it hard? Of course it is. Is it a struggle? Yes. But it's normal to struggle as a Christian. It's normal to To wrestle with things. It's normal also to see the reality of these things taking place in our midst. It's not unusual. It's not extraordinary. It's normative Christianity. And so what I want us to begin to do in this then is to start to say, when these things aren't taking place, we say, what's wrong? Why isn't it like that? Because that's normal. Instead of somehow holding up those type of things as a paragon And this almost unattainable reality of, boy, it should be great if it was like that. I want us to have problems when it's not like that. I want us to be bothered when we haven't been among God's people in a while. We don't normally get together with other people from our congregation and have meals with them and do things with them and call them up and see what's happening. That's normal. That's what you do with your family, is it not? Don't answer that because I know some of you have some difficult family situations. But my point is, is if it's a healthy, normal family, those are things most of us do. Many of us are going to call our mothers today if they're still living. And if they're not, we're going to think about our mothers. And we're going to remember them. And we're going to be thankful for them. Because that's kind of the normal thing to do. Paul is not giving us in this passage here a nice request. He is calling us and commanding us to walk, or another way to put it, live in love. Because walking basically is just another way of saying live. This is how you ought to live. This is the context of how your life ought to be, surrounded in love. You ought to be loving. That's how you ought to be. It's normal. It's what Christians do. I'm not saying there's not extraordinary things which enable that to take place. I'm not saying that there's not supernatural power at work. I'm just saying that we should not see this as an unattainable goal. We should see it as a reality to be pursued. This reality is based upon the engulfing reality of love that Paul is seeking to impress upon us. We are loved beyond, as I've tried to stress over the past couple weeks, beyond our wildest imagination. We have no idea. If we are Christians, how much God loves us. We have no idea. We cannot fathom the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of God in Christ for us. We have no comprehension. And it's at that point we shouldn't keep trying to figure it out. We ought to just bask in the sunshine of love. So that what we do is we live in love. Love is normal for us. It is normal for the people of God to be loved people and to know they're loved. This love of the triune God for us becomes the foundation for Christian ethics. See, you will not understand Christian ethics unless you get this. And that's part of why Paul puts it right smack dab in the middle of all these exhortations of how we ought to live. Biblical love is the grounds for biblical ethics. If you love, you keep the commandments of God. What did Jesus say to his disciples? If you love me... You'll keep my commands. What is my command? That you love one another. Biblical ethics is rooted and grounded in biblical love. Not love as defined by the world. Love as defined by the scriptures. But it's rooted there. And this is why, and I'll just say this on the side, and then we'll look at our three points. This is why for me it's it's almost offensive when I hear people say something like this. Well, you know... Muslims and Mormons, you know, they do a lot of good things. And when I hear Christians, born-again Christians, saying those kind of statements, it just really bugs me. And I'll tell you why. It's like saying, you know, those Moabites that, you know, that making their children walk through fire, you know, they get the idea that a, that a child or, or, or a human being has to be sacrificed in order for salvation to take place. And you understand how offensive that ought to be to you that you would you would you would draw a connection and say, well, you know, those Moabites—they got a point there. You know, killing of a human being is required for God's wrath to be appeased. Well, they got a point, but is that a point we want to unite ourselves to? Is that a point that God said, "Now look at these Moabites"? And so, I wanted you to start to think about the fact that why we do what we do is just, if not more important than what we do. It is terribly important that we understand the motivation for biblical ethics is the love of God for us as demonstrated in Christ. And that's what this passage is laying out for us this morning. And that's what I want you to see. And I want you to start to think this is normal. This is how normal Christians operate. And this is how we should be seeking to operate. The first thing I want us to look at then is the cost of love. I know some of you need to put some, need to rub out some of the gold on your Bibles back in this section of, of, of the scripture, so I'm going to have you turn back to numbers, chapter 28: 29. I know this is frequently where many of you turn to for encouragement and solace. And I'm saying that kind of tongue-in cheek because what my hope is after we read a little bit of, of numbers, you might go, you know what, I'm going to go spend some time in numbers because numbers actually, in light of what the New Testament is saying, is incredibly comforting or at least gives me an insight into how great my God is. Now, here's the thing I want you to look at what Paul has said there. Let me just read to you. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The first thing I want us to look at is the cost of love. What does biblical love cost? I want you to get an idea of what that looks like. I'm going to begin reading here in verse 1 of chapter 28 of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer me at this appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs a year old without blemish, day by day, every day, as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a quarter of a hen of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen for for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight like the grain offering of the morning and like its drink offering you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Then he goes on. On the Sabbath day, so every seven days, two male lambs a year old with blemish and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Every month. At the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old without blemish. Also, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull and two-tenths of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram. A tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be a half a hen of wine for a bull, a third of a hen for a ram, and a quarter of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Now, I'm reading all this, and I'm not going to keep reading, so you can can take a deep breath. But if you kept on reading, you then get to the Passover offering, and then you get to the offering for the Feast of Weeks, and the offerings of the Feast of Trumpets, and the offerings for the Day of Atonement. You getting the picture here? Offerings for the Feast of Booths. Here's what I just read to you. Here's what that equivalates. Every day, two male lambs, two quarts of fine flour, and one quart of oil mixed together, and two quarts of wine one for the morning, one for the evening. Every Sabbath, 2 male lambs, 4 quarts of fine flour, 2 quarts of oil, 2 quarts of wine. Every month, 2 bulls, 1 ram, 7 male lambs, 1 male goat. For each bull, 6 quarts of fine flour and 4 quarts of oil. That's for each bull. Um, For the ram, 4 quarts of fine flour and 2 quarts of oil. For each lamb, that's 7 of them, 2 quarts of fine flour, 1 quart of oil, 2 quarts of wine for each bull, one and a half quarts of wine for the ram, and 1 quart of wine for each lamb. Now, the sacrifice of Christ, what I want you to understand is, is the sum totality of all of that. Now, can you imagine living in a society where at least a good portion of your lifetime is spent producing bulls, lambs, flour, oil, and wine to haul to Jerusalem so that every day that sacrifice could be offered and every sabbath that sacrifice could be offered and every month and every passover and every atonement and every are you getting the picture of in God's mind how costly sin is because what does he say the reason why you do this is to put a soothing aroma in my nostrils why why does do we need a soothing aroma because here's the answer you stink bad you stink so bad That lambs and bulls and goats and rams and fine flour mixed with oil, in other words, scented, fragranted oil and wine, have got to be offered so that this aroma just is continuing to pour into the heavens so I don't smell your stink. That's not to mention the Day of Atonement, the Passover, the Feast of Booze. Are you getting the picture? Because what I want you to really understand is what Paul is trying to get you to wrap around is, do you understand that this is what it means to love? It is to present something so incredible, so costly, that it's beyond price. That basically when it happens, all that other stuff goes away completely. Because the value of it takes away all that. In fact... What the writer of Hebrews tells us is none of that really ever really got the stink gone. God just let, it it didn't smell as bad. That's basically what you're kind of hearing. All this sacrificing kind of stood in the way, pointing to. But do you understand what the people were supposed to get? You stink. And what you ultimately depend on is the Lord. And here's how. I want you to think about this. Who did they need to give them a good harvest? Who did they need to keep their flocks healthy so they could present unblemished lambs, unblemished bulls, unblemished rams, unblemished goats? Who did they need to give them a good wine harvest every year? The Lord. So ultimately what they were supposed to be learning was this. I require something that you can't even give to me unless I give it to you. You are totally and utterly dependent on me. On good weather. On good herds. On a good wheat crop. On a good wine crop. On good oil. Olive oil crop. Are you getting the picture of the cost? How significant it is? It is massive. It is mammoth. And Paul is not trying to get you away from that. He wants you to see that ultimately, the ground and foundation of our salvation is is that Christ paid a price more significant than anything you can imagine in earthly wealth. Because if you started to think about in that culture, how much all that those bulls and all that flour and all that oil and all that wine, how much that actually was worth, that they were every day pouring out to the Lord, they ultimately were saying, God was saying, you are dependent upon me. You need me. And ultimately... You need to understand that even all this sacrifice does not get you where you need to be. Something greater has got to come. Something greater than all this stuff has got to be there for us. And so what we see then in this reality is that Paul is saying, walk in love, how? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the second point I want us to look at then is the aroma of love. We already saw in that Numbers text that what we were actually looking at is, here's, it's costly, we also see that it was supposed to be a fragrant aroma. So, Paul brings that aspect up of this as well. One of the things I want us to see: part of what was required for this thing to be a fragrant offering is—is is this language of Christ gave Himself up. Christ willingly goes to the cross. Christ, as an unblemished person, willingly goes and lays down His life for people who do not deserve it. Paul wants us to catch in a mat. The image that the fragrance of Christ's sacrifice is infinitely powerful. You understand this? It's not not just like putting deodorant on and kind of masking your stink. What Paul's wanting you to get the idea of is that when Christ was sacrificed for us, our stink went away. It's powerful detergent. It's like Clorox for the soul. The blood of Christ, sacrifice washes us clean. What the blood of bulls and goats could not accomplish, the blood of Christ does. The second thing I want you to see that Paul is wanting us to see is this, that it is immeasurably loving because what is it? Christ loved us. When Christ did this, this love was poured out for us unmeasurably. He is loving us and that aroma, his sacrificial love goes up. And the third thing is is that the cost was priceless. So the value of something is determined by by the idea of what could you pay for it. Well, what could you pay for this? Absolutely nothing. You could never earn enough. You could never do enough. There is no way we could ever even come close to the cost that Christ has given for us, his very own life. And so the idea then becomes that, You are to think about yourself operating in an atmosphere of God's presence with all this cloud, this aroma of Christ's sacrifice and love filling the holy place where God is. So that when He sees you, all He smells and sees is this wonderful, glorious aroma of Christ's sacrifice. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, walk in love. Why? Because the price has been paid and the aroma... Of God's requirement of an aroma that was soothing and satisfying is there continuously, eternally, forever. It's never going away. Now, for some of you, you'll think what I'm about to say is dangerous, but it's not dangerous. It's the gospel. Here it is You can't sin enough as a Christian to make yourself stink. That's what the gospel is saying. That's what it says. Your sin, no matter how great it is, no matter how much it is, is not enough to create a stink in heaven because of what Christ has done. I'm not saying what you ought to do in light of that truth. I'm just saying that's the truth. The truth is, is that you cannot stink up heaven. As a Christian, you don't have that kind of power. See, part of what I'm trying to say is have enough humility to recognize that Christ's sacrifice is greater than all your sin. You need to get that in your head. And if you do, then you begin to understand how Paul can command you to walk in love. Because see, if you really understand that, the price has been paid, debt paid, and no matter what happens in life, when I screw up, when I foul up, when I slip up, I can't make God go, boy, you're smelly. Because Christ's sacrifice, that aroma continues to go into the heavens for me. So what does that make me? It makes me a person that has courage. It makes me a person that has trust. It makes me a person not going, well, what's God thinking about me this morning? You know, I really blew it yesterday. It makes you a person that gets up with boldness and says, today is the day that God has given for me. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Not because I've been perfect yesterday, not because I'm going to be perfect today, but because I'm going to live in light of what Christ has done for me in the love that God has for me in Christ and the love that Christ has for me and the love that the Holy Spirit brings to me. And that brings us to our third point, the sacrifice of love. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that the Holy Spirit, when He was poured out into us, was a demonstration of God's love. He brings God's love into us. The reality of that love comes into us. So what does that mean? That means that when I start to think, how can we live like this? How can this be normal? Isn't this bigger than us? The answer should be, yes, it is bigger than us, but it's not impossible for this to be normative for us. Why? Because these things are impossible for men, but they're not impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. And the reality is, is that if the love of Christ has been poured out into our hearts, what does that mean we love out of? Our own strength? Our own power? Our own love? No. We love out of the love that's being poured into our lives that Christ has Pouring into us, that the Spirit is flowing out of us. The fruit of the Spirit is not something you try to get. It's something the Spirit gives and presses out as the grace of Christ is pressed in. Does that make sense what I'm saying? The more Christ's grace is pressed into us, the more what flows out of us is the fruit of the Spirit. Because the fruit is pouring the love of God into us and pressing out the reality of of God's goodness in us. So we ought not be afraid. We ought not be fearful. Of course you're going to open your mouth and say something that's dumb. It's going to happen, men and women. It's going to happen. Of course you're going to attempt to do something that you meant it all to go this way, and it's going to all go this way. There's not a person in this room that at some point is not going to be misunderstood because of something they tried to do. And there's also nobody in this room that's not going to have some sinister reason why they did whatever they did. Trust me, none of you are that good and none of you are that bad. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? I'm trying to get you to understand that your sin is not able to stop the flow of redemption in your life. And God is determined to conform you into the image of Christ. In other words, He's trying to make us live normal Christianity. Jesus is an extraordinary man in light of sin, but He is calling us to be ordinary men in that way. We're called to be godly men and women. We're called to live as lovers of God and lovers of one another and even lovers of our enemies. And so naturally what that has to do for us is it has to start making us change things we do. Why? Because they're not loving. See, how is it loving to yell at people? How is it loving to constantly criticize people? How is it loving to constantly be at odds with other people? That's what begins to become the motive. I want to see other people loved well. Whether or not they love me in return is irrelevant. And understand what this means for us. We then begin to have people... When we have issues at school, we're dealing with this right now. We're trying to help one of our children learn how to love a fellow student. Because the easy thing to do is just to say, just ignore them and move on. Get your own circle of friends. Let them have their own circle of friends. You kind of do your own thing. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says, you are an irritant. And I want to love you despite myself. I want to reach out to you and extend love to you because somehow... Whatever it is in your life that you feel the need to constantly be an irritant to me, I want to love you so much, I want to love that irritation away. Or else I want to be determined that whatever edges God is using you to hone off of me, I want them to be honed off completely. I, don't, I want you to think about sanctification like this, men and women. I want to learn certain lessons one time and one time only. I want God to do the whole thing right then. I don't want to have to... There's some lessons you're just going to have to learn over and over again through life. There's other ones that you just don't want to learn too many times. You basically say, Lord, cut off that edge in totality. Round it out. And see, lots of times we're not really embracing sanctification because we keep trying to get rid of the irritation rather than saying the gospel can enable me to love more powerfully than I believe. I can live in love in a way that will astound me, but will also remind me that this is normative for the people of God. It is normal for God to do astounding things in the lives of human beings. And I don't mean astounding things like floods and lightning bolts and thunderstorms. I mean astounding things like Well, Ilda went to the doctor today and she really is so much aware of your prayers. When six months ago, the last thing Ilda really cared about was anybody praying for her. See, what we shouldn't say is, we should love that, we should bask in it, we should say, that's awesome. But see, that's normal. That's what God does. He does it all the time. He changes people's hearts. It's amazing. It is extraordinary, but it's not extraordinary for the people of God. When you're hungry, He gives you bread. When you're thirsty, He causes water to come out of a rock. In conclusion, then, I want to say this to us. When we think about these realities, what will this produce as we seek to implement this into our life? I want you to think back about chapter 4 and what was being said, verses 17 through 32. And here's what I want you to think about. Imagine, if you will, use your sanctified imagination, an atmosphere of love where kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness are the norm. That's normal. It's just what people do. It's how we operate. A place where anger is aimed not at each other, but at sin and evil. Where sharing and hard work are pursued. Why? Why? So we can gather with others, not to share and hear critical negative reports, but rather where people are excited to see what God is doing in their midst. A place where encouragement and gracious upbuilding is the norm. You're not surprised when someone says it's something encouraging to you that makes you want to live your faith more fully. It's something you just grow very accustomed to. That person just always, I always walk away feeling like I want to live for Jesus more. I want to pursue the cause of Christ more. A place of prayer. A place of expectation where we actually really do believe that he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Where we believe that so that we expect great things from God and therefore willing to attempt great things for God. And one of those great things might just simply be learning to love a person who bugs you. One of those great things might be willing to, for the first time, be willing to openly confess something to a spouse, a friend, a brother, or a sister because you're not worried about what they think about you. What your concern is dominated by is what God thinks about you in Christ. And therefore, whatever they think is not the driving emphasis. I'm loved. And my Heavenly Father says, you don't stink anymore, Dennis. And therefore, you have the courage and the ability to love other people, even if they think you're a slumbag. Even if they think you're a scum. Even if they think you're just the worst kind of human being alive. Because really, at the end of the day, their opinion is not the final matter. It's God's opinion. And if you're in Christ, he says, loved beyond your wildest imagination. So here's the final statement. What are you willing to do? How sacrificially are you willing to live in light of Christ's sacrifice? How sacrificially are you willing to live in order to see this happen? Because that is Paul's point. Christ is sacrificed. He's not only the ground of your salvation. He also is the example to you in your Christian life. As Christ has loved you, so love one another sacrificially. Laying down your life for them. Not because they're good. Not because they're great. Not because they're worth it. But because of the value of what Christ has done for you. May God make us sacrificial people. And may we walk or live in love. Amen.